Blog Talk Radio. I believe in the bright light of hope and possibility. I always have, even in the darkest hours. I know what America can achieve. I've seen it. I've lived it. I'm convinced. We can reach our goals only if we are not petty when our cause is so great, only if we find a way past the stale ideas, stalemate of our times, and only if we replace the politics of fear with the politics of hope, and only if we have the courage. Welcome to a special edition of Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, joined by my co-host tonight, Dr. Wilmer Leon of The Power. XM Serious Radio, Inside the Issues with Wilmer Leon. Thank you for joining us. to the special edition of Our Common Ground, a collaborative broadcast with Dr. Wilmer Leon of Inside the Issues with Wilmer Leon, the Power XM Sirius Radio. Good evening, Dr. Leon, and welcome again to Our Common Ground. Good evening, Janice, and as always, I am truly humbled when you invite me to participate in the program. Well, you know... You have been doing some very, very powerful writing, and I think that truth has to be spoken more than once, that we have to repeat it and repeat it until, as we say, the truth is done. So thank you so very much for uh, um, agreeing to to co-host with me tonight a discussion about your most powerful and intriguing piece, which uh, can be found on urbancusp.com, Compromise Our Concessions at Whose Expense. And uh, I have prepared uh, a bit of an introduction to all of this, and we, as much as we could, um, provided a copy of the commentary. But I want to talk to you before we get started about what what was your mission here because there was just so much confusion over the last month in the hostage-taking of this country's economy. And in July, one of the things that you did that you wrote, one of the pieces that you wrote, and you've been doing some powerful writing, brother. Well, thank you. You wrote about the debt compromises on the on the backs of black Americans, and, and, and you talked about how that has been a historical trend. 
and we certainly want to do some talking, uh, some discussion about that. We also want to welcome all of you out there uh, to this special edition of Our Common Ground, this what I call the broadcast collaborative. I think that uh, we have a responsibility as broadcasters to make clear what some of these issues are, and thank you for joining us. We're going to be taking your calls, but first we want to set and frame uh, the discussion around this very, very important and critical piece that Wilma Leon has written. And I forgot to ask you, how are you? I, I, <laughs> rising on strike, so, um, you know, and students are starting to demand what's going to happen in the next semester, and there's just been a lot of stress on us as broadcasters. Yes, try to yes. unravel all there's, this nonsense. There's an awful lot going on, but but I, you know, as I told someone today, I'm here, so it's good. <laughs> the rest, the re- I was blessed to wake up this morning, so the rest we can handle. The rest well, is up that's, to me. Well, that's that's a, a good way to um, to approach it, because it can be quite disheartening. Oh, absolutely, um, absolutely. It it it, and 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 part of that is that. And I'm not sure if it's because, as a community, we have a uh, post-traumatic stress disorder going on. But one of the things that we did not do is we did not pay attention to our own barometers. We knew that this agenda was coming up. We understood it from January when the president uh, talked about... um, the deficit, and we were disappointed that he did not allow the Bush tax uh, incentives um, and breaks to um, to expire. Well, but you know, we didn't look at what is at stake. Well, and and we were also very disappointed in December when he did concede. Allowing the uh, Bush era tax cuts to uh, to continue, that he did not address the uh, the debt ceiling issue at that time. Uh, mm-hmm. Many have argued, and, and I agree, that it would have been a very compelling argument to make to the public that you can't, on one hand, uh, allow these tax cuts to continue, thereby as David Stockman talked about during the Reagan administration, starving the beast from its needed revenues and then not allow the government to extend the debt ceiling, to raise the debt ceiling so that the government could borrow the money it would need in order to continue to provide for particularly the least in the community. Uh, And so when he failed to make that connection, uh, a lot of folks knew that, that there was a problem definitely on the horizon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's really interesting that we are now going back and citing David Stockman. He was a very um, hostile yes. character in the. And radio. I believe even David Stockman has come out and said that the recent events were crazy. Are crazy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so if they're mm-hmm. if they're if they're too crazy, too extreme for David Stockman, then then you know uh, how far. Um, beyond the pale these things have have gone but to answer your uh 
you said you wanted me to kind of lay a foundation for the piece. Uh, and I'm glad you mentioned the piece that I wrote earlier in July. Don't forget uh, blacks in the in the deficit uh, in the deficit struggle, uh, because that piece was written uh, on the heels of the Pew Research Center study that showed the disparity in uh, the in the wealth gap in this country, and the fact that and, and this is a this is just to me an incredibly incredibly stunning number that the average wealth of the African American household in 2009 was $5600. 5600. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about wealth, what we're talking about is tangible assets. Your home, stocks, cash, not your salary. Home, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. stocks, cash, things that you are able to transfer to the next generation. Mm-hmm. The average wealth in the African-American household, $5,600. The average wealth in white households, $114,000. Well, $113,000 and change. $114,000. That's an incredible disparity. So uh, the piece that, that uh, you called me on, called me to talk about compromise or concessions at whose expense, um, is 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 taking that understanding of the disparity in uh, in wealth and combining that with this whole idea of compromise, because I tell my students all the time, as we look at history, uh, we always in the history of this country, what we find is whenever there has been a compromise that dealt with African Americans our interests were always those interests that wound up getting compromised. And so when I heard the president talk about we need compromise, we need compromise, it just made me think about, I wonder how many people are connecting the the historic dots about Mm -hmm. the, the great compromises that have taken place in this country and the impact that those compromises have had on people of color. Absolutely, and one of the things that you point out in that piece is that you go almost as a diary in the history from Dred Scott versus Sanford, uh, from that report back to Dred Scott versus Sanford. You go back to some of the constitutional um, interpretations which where compromise has been very, very, as you called it, tricky, even into the Plessy uh, and Brown versus Board of Education decisions. Well, and the, the, it is the something that we, right? We, there, they were all compromises. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that uh, you point out in July, before the decision was made about the debt ceiling, and you carry on into your more most recent. Uh, a commentary, which is the subject of our broadcast tonight, color our uh, compromise, our concession at whose price? You said back on July 29th, you asked the question whether or not we could afford, as a people, another great compromise, and here we are. And here we so, are. So, yeah, let's try to frame this. I've put together a little piece that talks about some of the pieces, the, the critical points that you make in this piece, 
and then we can have you um, summarize okay. what you're advising us. In response to three weeks of dueling and hostage-taking, my co-host tonight, Dr. Wilma Leon, responded with a very riveting, interesting, and thought-provoking commentary. In his essay, Compromise or Concession at Whose Expense, he writes, These compromises of values and lapses in judgment are not only found in the constitutional foundations of America, but the courts and legislature as well. Many of them have been used to support, codify, institutionalize ideologies of white supremacy in America. Compromise can be tricky, he writes. At almost every turn, too much, too many of America's great compromises have been concessions at the expense of either Africans in America or African Americans. We can ill afford this great compromise. My co-host tonight on this Our Common Ground special, where we talk about compromise or concessions at whose expense, Dr. Wilmer J. Leon, producer and host, Inside the Issues with Wilmer Leon on Sirius XM 128, The Power. He teaches at Howard University in Washington, D.C. Thank you for joining us. This is a special edition of Our Common Ground. And so one of, I tried to capsulize what is important for this audience to understand, that this was a compromise which has been made on the backs of poor and black people, and it has been made, uh, Wilmer, in the interest of a continuation of white supremacy in this country. You're absolutely right. And, and one of the things that uh, I think was missing in this discussion, one of the things I think that was missing in all of the president's press conferences on this issue, and I think he had three, uh, was that he never framed the discussion by f- starting off by saying, is it, first of all, he never he never framed the discussion by decoupling the issues that the conservatives were very, very shrewd in tying together. The raising of the debt ceiling, Medicare, Medicaid, the president threw in Social Security, and the debt. And the debt. Those things are unrelated. Uh, just quickly, the the deficit. I'm sorry, the debt is money owed for services already rendered Those and are, voted upon. And voted that upon and passed. Yes. <laughs> and, appropriated, and, and, legislatively appropriated expenditures. And and, and 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 this is something that I think is important for people to understand. Those services have already been rendered, voted on in the House, passed in the House, voted on in the Senate, passed in the Senate, appropriated and paid for. Well, not paid for, but appropriated and, and performed. Approved. Performed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the debt. 
The deficit is a projection of future expenses balanced against projected future revenue. And what they're saying is we've got more money, we have more expenses coming than we have money to cover it. So you're talking past versus future. Future, exactly. The other thing is Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security have absolutely nothing to do with, with the either. debt because that stuff has already been paid. I mean, it has already been done. So, but the president never broke it down like that to to explain to the American people what the conservatives are trying to do here, ladies and gentlemen, is they're trying to eliminate programs that they have been opposed to since 1965 when Medicare and Medicaid became law. And that they're now seizing upon this opportunity of the debt ceiling issue to link these things together to fool you all into thinking that these programs have to be dealt with, have to be cut, and have to be cut now. That was a fraud. That was a flat-out fraud that the president mm-hmm. never exposed. And, 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 and why do you think that he, in, in my opinion, he has been totally inept yes, in word. raising the issues uh, in a way that, one, he kept saying, I'm coming to the American people, but he came to the American people, and he wasn't really saying exactly what, what you've just outlined. He wasn't explain. He never explained something that most people understand, and that is Social Security is just that. It's an insurance, and you pay premiums. So you put in, it's like, as my mother explained it, it's like the old insurance policies, life insurance policies, that you put it in and mm-hmm. you get it out. Burial insurance. Right. <laughs> the old burial insurance policy. Yes. Exactly. And 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 I I never heard the president once say that most studies show that social security is solvent at current funding levels for the next 25 years. Mm-hmm. That ha- and so 25 years is future. That has nothing to do with the debt. And he never and, – and I think inept is a very good word. Uh, part of the problem, I believe, is he's sitting in this room with all these people from Harvard who think that they're the smartest people on the damn planet, and they sit around the room and tell each other how smart they are, and they agree with each other about how smart they are, and they're flat out getting played mm-hmm. by the Republicans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know – I observed it in this way. One of the reasons why Barack Obama was so electrifying to America, some American people is because he was able, as he campaigned, to tell a story, mm-hmm. a story of hope, a story of change, and in the context that the American people needed their president to tell. And in this instance, when it is so critically important, not only to his presidency and the legacy of his presidency, which is vanishing, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. day by day, Mm 
he wasn't able to tell a story. He kept saying, I know you're scared, I know you're angry, you've lost your jobs, your your homes. But he wasn't really able to tell the story of what he envisioned and why. And I think it was because he was too scared to talk I, about some very specific things. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, on a number of levels. One is I have been at a loss since President Obama was sworn in to understand what's their message, what's their objective, where are you taking us. He, To me, he has never clearly articulated that. Now, to his credit, he's been overtaken by some fairly significant events. But I will... I will say to you that uh, events shape an administration, and an administration's response shapes events. And mm-hmm. what we haven't seen is a response that shapes events. He has been controlled, he has been reactionary to things, and has not been able to control, has not been able to develop or control a narrative that is resonating with the folks that elected him. And so when you look at all his accomplishments, and there have been many, but when you look at the accomplishments, in the minds of many, those accomplishments, as significant as they are, haven't been enough. The optimism of yes, we can, and change we can believe in has turned into the pessimism of if not now, when, and if not you, who. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I don't think that those smart folks from Harvard yet understand that. They don't get it. They don't get that based upon, now this is anecdotal, but based upon what I'm hearing day-to-day, people I'm talking to, he has lost his base and is losing African Americans. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that's I've certainly had, I've had a number of people tell me. That's going on. I've had mm-hmm. a number of very, very progressive, intelligent, in-tune people say, if the Republicans give me half of a sensible option, I will greatly consider voting for it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then there are a number of people who won't vote Republican, they'll just stay home. So I'm at a loss of where is he going to get his numbers from? Because the polls are showing more white people, many independents, and conservative Democrats are moving and siding Republican heading towards 2012. Well, I'll tell you, in my inbox tonight, I received uh, an article called Hillary Told You So. <laughs> and I think that's the first salvo yeah. in a move that's going to be quite, but not surprising. Yeah. Yeah, and I didn't think, I didn't think that I would be able to say that we may be looking at a one-term president. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. the longer this drags out, the more possible, and I haven't said probable but yet, but the more possible that becomes. Well, one of the things 
um, that people are questioning, and there's someone in our chat room that's that's posing the question, is why is it so out of the question for a more liberal Democratic to run against him? Uh, the seasoned politicians like Bernie uh, Sanders and even Kucinich uh, would not uh, de- uh, go against the party and run against him. But it is not uh, beyond the pale to to think that someone in his own party will see these holes, the holes that we're talking about, the the obvious lack of bold, courageous, and progressive leadership. For instance, let me give you a good example. I know you noticed this, um, and I heard you talking about it quite eloquently on your show a uh, week before last, and that is when he had the second press conference mm-hmm. or address to the American people. I was hoping that he was coming forth and saying, hey, guys, you know, you've been fiddling around. You're messing with the wrong thing. I give you two days. If you don't deliver me a bill, a single bill in regard to the debt ceiling, I will do what Article 5 of Amendment 14 tells me that I must do. And that is the debt that is, of, the, of, the, of the United States Shall, all debts of the United States shall be recognized. Exactly. Uh, now, and it also, Article 5 obligates the Congress and obligates the President when the Congress does not act. Yes. Now, um, Emmanuel Cleaver came out and said that uh, a couple weeks ago. And I don't know if you heard the show Saturday, but I had Robert Smith on and Clarence Lussain, two incredibly brilliant political scientist yes. and, and I've known, I've, I, I was listening to Clarence and I was thinking, gee, I knew Clarence when he was a grad student. Oh, okay, okay. He was, a, he, was a, he was a guest on Our Common Ground a number oh, of times. Oh, wow, he was, okay. Yeah. He's been brilliant a long time. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he's <laughs> been brilliant a very long time. Now, now, both of them disagreed with exercising the 14th Amendment, and Robert said that he disagreed with it because – that that would have been restructuring the that it would have been unconstitutional and that it would have been restructuring the separation of powers. Now I didn't get into a debate with them because I didn't want to get hung up on that particular issue, but I disagree with them because the separation of powers um, uh, dictates that all spending bills originate in the House and must be approved by the Senate. Well, since we're talking about the debt, the spending bills for that debt did originate in the House, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, were approved by the Senate and uh, appropriated. Mm -hmm. So we're not looking to initiate new spending. We're looking to pay for the bills that have come due. And that, to me, is the constitutional difference where – an executive order lifting the debt ceiling would have been, at the end of the day, found constitutional. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think Emmanuel Cleaver was right. I think a number of people who have said it says in the Constitution that this is what you have to do, and all the president is doing is initiating the order to make it happen. 
Um, and also with that, I would have challenged the Republicans to beat me. The same way that – because this is something that I think a lot of people need to understand. And again, we got to connect the dots. Abraham Lincoln did not have constitutional authority when he issued the Emancipation Proclamation. He did it. He didn't have constitutional authority when he imposed the, the, the embargo, the blockade, on ships in South Carolina. He did it. Mm-hmm. FDR didn't have, according to the Supreme Court, constitutional authority when he started implementing his New Deal programs, because many of those programs early on, the Supreme Court found to be unconstitutional. What did, what did, what did FDR do? He told the court, if you don't change what you're doing, I'm going to put more people on the court. He was going to just do it. Yes. We're waiting for the president to just to be like Nike and just do it. Well, the thing is that this this president's personality is not that way. Coupled, yes, coupled with the lack of people surrounding him who brings the spirit mm-hmm. of his agenda, who can articulate that. He doesn't have one member of his cabinet who can be his one guerrilla warfare uh, warrior. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have a member of his cabinet who can be his come-to-Jesus uh representative he, he it's almost as though he's standing alone he and I, I, with that when you stand alone in an isolation in that way it is very difficult to be progressive and bold i asked this on a couple of shows that i've been on talking about this do you think dick cheney would have stood for this in in the Bush administration, do you think Dick Cheney would have allowed the Democrat uh, Nancy Pelosi or or Harry Reid to come into the White House and 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 threaten him the way that Boehner I call him now John Boehner Cantor because to me they they've morphed into one person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that Dick Cheney in the Bush administration? I'm going to tell you, bodies would have been floating in the reflecting pool. Cheney would have sent a message, uh, don't mess with Texas. This is how we're going to get this done. And if you don't get in line, uh, you're going to come up missing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're, you're absolutely right. Now, in your piece, one of the things that you say is that the Republicans were insistent on attacking entitlement programs, mm-hmm. Medica- Medicare, Medicaid, and and Social Security, because they wanted they wanted Social to privatize Security, it in yes. the Bush administration. And one of the things it seems that we're not connecting the dots on is that this is a Bush privatizing, getting control, framing the 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 the, the dialogue, the 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 public discourse Mm -hmm. on those programs has been an absolute 
um, mission mission of the, the the Republican Party, and it was certainly uh, a mission of the Bush administration uh, in the in the in the in the first um, term. Mm-hmm. So we're not connecting the dots on that. I don't think the Obama administration. I think, well, let me say, I think they failed to connect the, the dots on that for the American people. I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, uh, you know, I, I honestly believe that, you know, programs that provide retirement security, both financial and medical, should be sacrosanct in American in, in America. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. And, and Republicans are using what is a real debt crisis that really had a simple solution, as we talked about the 14th Amendment, to attack programs that, they, that the conservative Republicans have always been ideologically opposed to. And, and, and I've had people in the Obama administration tell me he's a terrible negotiator. He comes to the table with his cards all exposed. He puts everything on the table up front. And what he has yet to understand is when Senate Minority Leader um, uh, McConnell, McConnell. Mm -hmm. Mitch McConnell, said in 2010, my primary objective is to see to it that Barack Obama is a one-term president. When Mitch McConnell made that public statement, the tone was the tone was set. Mm-hmm. We're not going to work with you. We're going to do everything we can do to see to it that you fail. And then that got articulated by their key spokesperson, Rush Limbaugh, who came out and said, "I want the president to fail." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can't negotiate with people like that because yeah. they're not yeah. negotiating with the best interest of seeking common ground, which is what a negotiation is supposed to be about, you cannot negotiate with people like that. It's impossible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, one of the things that people don't, that there was no discussion of, and I thought that the president or one of his minions um who had a, a voice in the public discourse should have been talking about is why the president had the option of um, of raising the de- debt ceiling by executive order. And that is that right after the Civil War, there were representatives in, in, of Congress who were part of the southern states who had threatened not to pay the bills due as a result of the war, the federal right. bills due as a result of the war, and it was also a strategy. Now, I'm underscoring this for you folks. It was also a strategy to strangle the economy of the North because that is where most of the contractors and most of the veterans who needed to be paid, or, or the soldiers who needed to be paid, lived. That's where the industrialists were who the government went to to fund the effort. Exactly. The contractors, the people who lent the money. 
people who lent and the money. And that's exactly what happened here. You know, and and it is almost, you know, I, I want you to talk about some of the examples that you used in your piece to make your point about how how we are as a community. Poor people working poor are put at risk with what what came came up as a result of even what he was proposing, what he came to the table with. Well, I think it's important to understand. Well, I, I talked about the um, the uh, issue of wealth and the fact that, and, and I think it's important to understand that because when you when you start out being having the least, then you know the impacts to these programs that people need uh, have a disproportionate impact. On uh, on people, and and this is something that that I think really has to be understood. That you know, there a disproportionate number of um, poor African Americans rely on Medicare and rely on Medicaid. Um, according to the Kaiser Foundation, you know, there's an estimated like 42 million Medicare Medicare beneficiaries. 33.1 million of them were white. Only 3.9 million were African American. But of those, we'll say 4 million, 64% of them had incomes below 150% of the federal poverty level. So even though we're dramatically, there are dramatically fewer of us receiving Medicare benefits, those of us that are, Almost 65% of those people have incomes 150% below the federal poverty level, as compared with only 32% of whites. When you look at Social Security, uh, Social Security was never intended to be a uh, a retirement plan, a, a complete retirement plan. It was supposed to be an element in a retirement plan. But 71% of African-American beneficiaries rely on Social Security for at least half of their income. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 47% of African-Americans rely on Social Security for 90% of their income. And uh, uh, 40% rely on it solely for their income. So when you start talking about changing Social Security to many white Social Security beneficiaries, that it's an issue, but it's not as big of an issue because they have 401k programs. They some are still receiving pensions from their jobs. They have households that have one hundred thirteen thousand dollars of wealth. We are not in that group of people. So we no, we're not are disproportionately impacted by cuts to those programs. Mhm. Mhm. And you know, one of the things that I think that the resistance to having a national foreclosure rescue program was that this administration understood that 
there was a large pool, well, a disproportionate pool of African American, Hispanic, and Native American foreclosures, and it would never get through the Senate. So they slipped it a little bit at a time into um, the stimulus bill. You're listening to Our Common Ground, this special edition, a collaborative between um, Our Common Ground and Inside the Issues with Wilmer Leon, which can be heard at 11 on Saturdays at XM Radio, XM Sirius Radio, The Power. Thank you again, uh, Dr. Leon, for, for doing this. I think that this is just so important. We're going to take a break. Uh, for those of you who are in our chat room, it seems all of our chat rooms, I've ju- I'm just getting a notice from Blog Talk Radio, the technicians are aware and working on the issue. Please check back uh, to ensure in a few minutes that you can get back into our chat room. This is our common ground. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to look at um, some more of this very important piece, um, which you can find at urbancusp.com, Compromise or Concession at Whose Expense, written by Dr. Wilma Leon, our co-host tonight, and we'll take your calls and response to, I, I did post it in our chat room, but the chat rooms are down, and your response uh, to what you read. How uncontroversial is Keynesian economics? Because it seems they've opened that can of worms now, too. I think the basic idea that if you increase government spending or you cut people's taxes, that stimulates the economy and lowers the unemployment rate is a very widely accepted idea. It's in every economics textbook. That's what we teach our undergraduates, and I certainly try to teach them the truth. Uh, And so it is, I think, a very known and accepted idea and fact and the empirical evidence is definitely there and people just want to say the the sky is green do you, do you feel a kinship economic economist like yourself with with climate scientists because it seems like you're you're both people who know real things that you <laughs> study at a college that's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. yeah <laughs> You're listening to Our Common Ground in a collaborative broadcast. Compromise and concessions at what price? With my co-host, Dr. Wilma Leon of The Power, XM Series Radio, broadcast on Saturdays at 11 a.m. Inside the Issues with Wilma Leon. Thank you so much for being with us.
leaving the school closed, the prison's open. We ain't got nothing to lose, everybody we rolling. Uh, everybody we rolling. With some light skin girls and some Kelly rolling. In this white man world, we the ones chosen. So good night, fool world. I see you in the morning. Uh, I see you in the morning. This is way too much, I need a moment. No one man to have all that power. With clock ticking, I just count the hours. Stop chipping, I'm chipping off the power. Healing, that the world's of this daughter of a clergyman spending 11 weeks at number one on the U.S. singles charts? One in 19 million. The odds of going on to win six Grammy Awards? One in 1.4 million. The odds of having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 150. I'm Tony Braxton, and I encourage you to learn the signs of autism at AutismSpeaks.org. And thank you for being with us here at this special edition of Our Common Ground. For those of you who are trying to join us in our chat room or you were kicked out, the technicians at Blog Talk Radio are currently working on the issue, and we hope that we can get you back into chat because I know there are many of you who really rely on chat to be uh, part of this broadcast. Our number is 347 I have joining me tonight as my co-host, Dr. Wilma Leon of Inside the Issues with Wilma Leon from XM Sirius Radio, The Power. And again, thank you so much, Wilma, for, for joining us. We're talking tonight about a piece that Dr. Leon wrote, and it was published on August 2nd. And it addresses the compromises and concessions made in this, they call it the debt ceiling agreement, but it's really more than that. Wilma, one of the things that puzzles me is that the president didn't stand up and say, I'm sorry, boys, but deficit and budget are two issues that are much too complex, much too important to the American people to put into a pot with something else that has nothing to do with it, as you as you pointed out. But it could have made him a hero. Uh, I guess you say he's he uh, snatched victory from the jaws, of, snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. Is 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 what he did because you know at at one moment uh, when when uh, Boehner walked out of the negotiations and the president you know came to the uh, forefront and and told the people that Boehner's walked out and when Boehner was getting beat up by uh, by his sidekick Eric Cantor it seemed like the administration had gained the upper hand and they had it for about a day and then you know. Boehner went in. And he just blew it. 
Vayner went in, took his beating, uh, took his whipping, and came out, and and it was over. And and the Democrats had no answer. They they mm-hmm. had they 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 had no answer. Um, and it, you know I, that I think that's attributable to a, to a few things. Uh, in the president's defense, not all the Democrats are behind him. Um, and and so you know it. And and also just just I think in general, um, finding consensus amongst the Democrats is going to be more difficult than finding consensus amongst the Republicans, just based upon the nature of their ideologies. Democratic thought, being more liberal thought, means you're going to have a, a more more diversity in ide in, in ideas. So you're 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 dealing with a broader spectrum of thought. Then, by its nature and very definition, conservative thought. Conservative thought is a narrower band of thinking, and that's not a that's not a a value judgment. That's a just to me a a a common sense understanding of it's easier to get conservatives to agree because the thought is narrower. Mm-hmm. So 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 the, the president had a heavier lift on his side. A because he's dealing with Democrats. B because not all of those Democrats are behind him, and then C, because I think he's an inept, an inept negotiator. Well, I'm not so sure if he's not an inept politician. Well, I mean, no, I'll say he's I a say brilliant that politician. He, that, you know, he's, de- he's dealing with this in the same way that he dealt with so many of the issues during the campaign. But he had many more opportunities of being able to promote a spirit of excitement. Well, but see, you're absolutely right. But 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 to your point, I think he's a brilliant politician, as evidenced by his campaign and the fact that he was able to get elected. But campaigning and governing are two different things. Two different things, yeah. But and I so, think that some of the characteristics that he demonstrated about his personal ability to engage, he's not using in governing. When he when he stepped out on the, the issue of the debt ceiling, when he was being hammered and challenged by the Republican leadership, he had an opportunity to be a politician because that's what they were doing. They were politically outsizing him at every step. But and you're right. And 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 I do have to backstep on some of that, Wilmer, because part of and and I know I'm not being a good student here, <laughs> a good student of political science, but part of that has to do with the overall media and engagement strategy of the GOP. Well, there before we get there. Lie, every, every moment they're at somebody's microphone. And he well, doesn't oh, have right. that. The, the, they but, repeat it over and over. They accuse him of the things that they do, as Alpha would say. And they just hammer and hammer and hammer and he doesn't have that. 
You're well, listening to a special right. edition of Our Common Ground. Our number is 347-838-9852. If you would like to hone in on this discussion about this very important piece that you can find at urbancusp.com, Compromise or Concession at Whose Expense by Dr. Wilmer Leon. Um, I hated to interrupt you, but I want to get callers to... I understand. I can't post in the in the chat room that uh, oh, we're taking calls. Well, let me let me throw out to Facebook that they can go to Facebook and because uh, okay. I, I have mine up. So if they want to throw some things in the mix, uh, go to Doctor Leon's prescription on Facebook, and I, and I can hit you from there. Okay, um, and then you have Twitter at Doctor W Leon. Yes, they can tweet as well, Doctor W Leon at Twitter. Um, you know your point about. Um, uh, the president, in the darkest hour, you know, not being able to turn to other Democrats. Well, see, that was a part of a problem that came from the fact that he came to the presidency only after being in the Senate for two years. So he never was really able to develop the kinds of relationships that he was going to need when he needed to turn to someone uh, based upon relationships, he hadn't developed them. I think when he was in the Senate, he had only gone to no more than four meetings of the Congressional Black Caucus, so he wasn't even really able to turn to his own to uh-huh. any great uh-huh. to any great degree. Not that he was really ever interested in it, but but, but I mean, based upon his deracialized uh, politics and 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 uh, his lack of participation with the caucus, but the but the members of the caucus, some of the members of the caucus will tell you. That mm-hmm. he was uh, in, in all too often um, missing in action when it when it came to the caucus, so he did not, uh, un, you know, unlike the, the extreme opposite of that would be a Lyndon Johnson who spent a million years in the Senate, two million years in the House, and mm-hmm. had developed those relationships, understood the very all of the nuances of legislation and the intricacies of the process. So when Lyndon Johnson picked up the phone and told somebody, look, this is what I'm getting ready to do, and if you're not with me, I'm going to hurt you. Yeah, yeah. Barack Obama didn't have that leverage. Yeah. I think he hasn't tempered himself in that way. And it's really surprising because this has been going on, the hammering and the attack. The the absolute mission of the Republican Party to destroy, disrupt his presidency since the day of the inauguration. And let me let me say to your to your audience that I don't I don't want people to get the wrong idea that I'm somehow anti Obama because I'm not. I'm I'm looking at results of action and I am commenting on policy. I am commenting on results. And because as a political scientist, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm not mm-hmm. supposed to get emotional and sentimental about the fact we got a first black president 
Dr. King never talked about having a first black president. Dr. King talked about policy, outcome, Mm -hmm. and the Mm -hmm. impact that policy had on African Americans and the poor. That's what Mm -hmm. he talked about, and that's what we're talking about. Yeah. You know, on Saturday night, I don't know if you know him, Dr. Vincent Hutchings at the University of Michigan uh, was with us, and one of the things that he emphasized, too, is that we can look at this record. We can look at a president who has not acknowledged the social, educational, and health issues of a major part of the of 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 um the US population and acknowledge that there has to be some programs, some initiatives which address that constituency and that is African Americans and Native Americans. Absolutely that is his right. Responsibility as a as the president of the United States. And, and but on the other on the other end of this, and I want to get your take, Wilmer, is that uh, as much as truth be told, we really didn't successfully, effectively, or aggressively challenge George Bush as he dismembered so many of the programs through funding and putting people in place who would never aggressively implement some of the programs that had been appropriated by Congress. I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's important for people to understand that when you look at a primary election and the as candidates are vying for their party's nomination, they will move to the extremes of the in many instances they will move to the extremes of those parties in order to secure the party's nomination and then in the general election what they'll have to do is modulate their politics and move more to the center because now instead of just appealing to a party they're appealing to the country and the country is neither as liberal as the most liberal Democrats, nor is it as conservative as the most conservative Republicans. So in order order to deal with the plurality, you have to move more to the middle. Well, I would would say that President Obama, to a great degree, didn't, didn't do that. He, in looking at the independence that he was bringing in and talking about change we can believe in and transparency in government and getting us out of Iran and Iraq and all that kind of stuff, uh, I mean Afghanistan and 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 Iran. You know, he didn't modulate nearly as much as most other candidates had to to win the general election. He modulated once he got into the White House, and seems to have forsaken the base that sent him there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Always trying to seek common ground with those who were whose mission it was to to remove him. Exactly. I don't understand that, other than understanding. I'm very very confused about that, which is why I make the statement that his political strategies are way off course. He does not understand what would make him a hero. And I talk about this 
in, in, in my professional work all the time. If you are a good manager, if you are a good people developer, you're always looking to find ways for your people to see you as a hero. Let's go let's go to our phones. Eight three two is on the air. You're on the air with Dr. Wilma Leon and our at our common ground. Thank you for your call. Hi, greetings. Hello, Dr. Leon. How are you doing? I am doing well. Oh. <laughs> now I've um been listening to most of the show. Uh my computer crashed a little bit and I'm one of those African Americans that don't even have the $5,500 in the bank, so I can't get a new one. So I missed the last 15 minutes or so. Um, but you know, well, well, Dr. Leon, you know, I I agree with much of what you with what you say, and I agree with what you're saying now. But I'm torn on this, and I know we talked about this before, and that is until this weekend, you know, I was sulking. I was like, you know, very frustrated with Obama. But then I started reading through. Um, um, some material I had, and Democrats. I mean, they have long um, c- compromised um, to Republicans for. I mean, not not even going back to the three fifths or or, or or to dress God or anything like that. We're talking about under Bill under Bill Clinton. And so, I mean, for example, you know, you mentioned Dick Cheney. First of all, I don't want a president who's going to behave like Dick Cheney. But even during the elections, Nancy Pelosi said we're not even going to put impeachment or any investigations of Dick right. Cheney on the table. Right. Um, um, John Conyers, when when he was talking about the Downing Street memo, he couldn't even have it in the Judiciary Committee. He had it in the basement of the Rayburn, right? Because Democrats right. don't want to talk about it. And so I ask you, I want to know, I mean, what Democrat has acted like like um, Lyndon Baines Johnson? And what and, and when you have Democrats who do not engage in the scorched earth politics that Republicans are willing to do, what can you what can you do? Well, I mean, what, as as a president, as what and I and some of them, I'm asking this not I, I'm asking this because I'm struggling with it. Is, uh, with, you know who I am, you know, so you know how I feel about the president. So I'm struggling with it, and that's why I'm asking the question. Well, Dr. Stanberry. I would, <laughs> I, I would say to you that I, I'm not advocating a scorched earth Republican tactic. All I was ever really looking for was for the president to use the bully pulpit to articulate the concerns and to motivate his base. And and I I, I just haven't seen that happening. And my comparison to uh, uh, Dick Cheney was not to say that I wanted President Obama to be Dick Cheney. You, you never want yeah. anybody to be that evil. But I was using that just as an extreme example to say, at least, damn it, man, pound on the table. You yeah. know, <laughs> and stop yeah. the and stop, and stop pounding on the podium then. <laughs> So irritating. <laughs> you know that that, that uh, you know that that's that's all I was. That's really the point that I was trying to get across. Is and and this is and this is where uh, I think that so much of his base is is scratching their heads when they say you won't even fight for us. You concede the point before it's even put on the table for discussion. Yes, and I and I and I understand I understand that, and and I also understand that his people are looking at 
at the independents out there, and they're looking at how the American people, the, the ratings of Congress. And I think that in the end, they think that they maintain independence, and if people run against Congress, inevitably, you know, he, he's going to, you know, be able to squeak through. I think that's their strategy, and I'm saying it's correct. Um, but it is, you know, it's going to be, it's going to give most of us tenure because we'll be writing about this for a long time. But it's something that we're going to continue to, to struggle with. But I will hang up and continue to listen because I've, I've actually, every time you're on the show, I obviously I do listen and I love the banter between the two of you. So I'll hang up and well, listen. Thank and I appreciate, you. I appreciate and, your and show. And we want you to join us on Saturday night when um, the executive director of the Lawyers Committee will join us once again. Barbara Arnwine will be with us on Saturday night uh, at 10 p.m., which is our regular broadcast. We also want our listeners to know that the chat room is back up, and we have provided. Thank you so very much for your call. And, and you know, one thing that she said which, which just stimulated a thought is, I, I think if I were to put it in, in a nutshell, the president is playing not to lose instead of playing to win. And mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. want him to play to win. Yes, yes. We want to see, I mean, part of it is that we want to see the signs that, one, he truly understands the spirit of the investment of poor and working poor in this country. Because that gives us a barometer about a number of things. The other thing that we want to see is new, bold leadership. The willingness to say what needs to be said. And he doesn't have to say it directly. He's got to, you know, one of the things that he made very clear when he came into office is that he is going to respond to the squeaky wheel. And that was the clue to us. Yes. That we must be active. We must pound dust on the issues that he has articulated he agrees with. And and I want to give you one example. I had a conversation this afternoon with someone about this issue uh, of 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 bringing down the troops in uh, Afghanistan. And I also want to acknowledge and remember those who died this week in service to this country, uh, the 30 people who who were felled in a, in a helicopter going to assist uh, American troops. But one of the things that I believe is that he hasn't found a good balance between what is politically expedient and what is politically empowering. And by that I mean, for instance, in bringing down the troops in Afghanistan, it is clear by the time they get the list together, um, knowing how the Pentagon operates, by the time they get that list together, they will be bringing troops who more than likely will be departing, separating from the from the military as they come home. That means that there will be thousands of military service people who will be added to the unemployment rolls in the middle of a campaign. Right. That's a difficult
difficult, difficult situation for him to be in. But at the same time, he could be calling. He is not demanding and challenging this Congress to do those things which gives him political cover. And while on the other side of the coin, he is providing political uh, cover, cover for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and and again, I think that some of that goes to, well, I, you know, they're focused on the on the biggest, brightest fires that are generating the most smoke, and as 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 well as, um, uh, you know, allowing, never having really established a narrative, and mm-hmm. controlling that narrative. You know, one of the things that you said earlier, the the Republicans are very good, very adept. Uh, at at crafting a message, mm-hmm. articulating a message, and seeing to it that everybody out there sticks to the message. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've you know they've hired people, um, uh, you know very very uh, adept strategists and pollsters to craft language that they understand will resonate with. Voters, even if it winds up with people voting against their interests, mm-hmm. the Democrats. Frank Luntz is a guy, uh, L-U-N-T-Z. He's a, a pollster and a Republican strategist that has been key at doing things like changing the name of the uh, inheritance tax to the death tax. Yes. Uh, changing the reference from uh, the uh, the um, Department of Defense to the Pentagon, those, mm-hmm. those those kinds of things, because people don't have a, a as big of a problem cutting the uh, or or they 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 will be more inclined to support a Pentagon budget as opposed to the Department of Defense. Yes, yes. Or, or vice versa. Anyway, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Um, so the the Democrats have never understood marketing and how to sell it, and that's and that's a huge huge problem for them. Mm-hmm. And the, and they're being tapped against the head. You know, Wilmer, I, I like that you said that you you clarified that you are not someone who opposes this president. Mm-mm. Because I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago, and I I said to a person something about the president ought to be doing this, and the president ought to be doing that, and about. 20 minutes later, I was then castigating um, the Democrats in the, in, the, in the House and the Democrats in the Senate and defending him. And the person I was talking to said, well, which is it? And I said, it is both. Because as an African-American woman, a president who is different no matter what he does, to every president of my lifetime, and I grew up in Jim Crow, so I will not allow him to take a beat down from these folks that he has not, one, earned, or two, cannot defend himself. Uh, so, you know, you, you do get very confused about it. Well, and, and, when, and, when those people, and when those people attack him, Based upon his race, they're attacking you, and they're attacking exactly, me. Exactly, exactly. You know, 
let's take a listen. And our number is 347-838-9852. And we want our listeners to know that our chat room is open again and operating. But let's take a look at the kind of language that he uses, that he has used in articulating what you have described in your piece as compromise and concession. The debt negotiations provide my perspective, and then I'm going to take a few questions. Uh, as all of you know, I met with congressional leaders yesterday. We're going to be meeting again today, and we're going to meet every single day until we get this thing resolved. Uh, the good news is that all the leaders continue to uh, believe, rightly, that it is not acceptable for us not to raise the debt ceiling uh, and to allow the U.S. government to default. Uh, we cannot threaten the United States' full faith and credit for the first time in our history. Uh, we still have a lot of work to do, though, to get this problem solved. Uh, and so let me just make a couple of points. Uh, first of all, uh, all of us agree that we should use this opportunity uh, to do something meaningful on debt and deficits. Uh, and the reports that have been out there have been largely accurate uh, that Speaker Boehner uh, and myself had been in a series of conversations about doing the biggest deal possible so that we could actually resolve our debt and our deficit challenge uh, for a long stretch of time. Uh, and I want to say I appreciate uh, Speaker Boehner's good faith efforts uh, on that front. Uh, what I emphasized to the broader group of congressional leaders yesterday is now is the time to deal with these issues. If not now, when? Uh, I've been hearing from my Republican friends for quite some time that it is a moral imperative for us to tackle our debt and our deficits in a serious way. I've been hearing from them that this is one of the things that's uh, creating uncertainty and holding back investment on the part of the business community. Uh, and so what I've said to them is, let's go. And it is possible for us to construct a package that would be balanced, would share sacrifice, would involve both parties taking on their sacred cows, would involve some meaningful changes to Medicare, and Social Security, and Medicaid that would preserve the integrity of the programs and keep our sacred trust with our seniors, but make sure those programs were there for not just this generation, but for the next generation. That it is possible for us to bring in revenues in a way that does not impede our current recovery, uh, but is fair and balanced. Uh, we have agreed to a series of uh, spending cuts that will make the government leaner, meaner, more effective, more efficient, uh, and give taxpayers a greater bang for their buck. That includes defense spending, that includes health spending, it includes uh, some programs that I like very much and we'd be nice to have, but uh, that we can't afford right now. And if you look at this overall package, we could achieve uh, a situation in which our deficits were at a manageable level and our debt levels were stabilized. Uh, and the economy as a whole, I think, would, uh, would benefit from that. Uh, more 
moreover, um, I think it would give the American people enormous confidence that this town can actually do something once in a while. That uh, we can defy the expectations that we're always thinking in terms of short-term politics in the next election, and every once in a while we break out of that and we do what's right for the country. Uh, so I continue to push congressional leaders for the largest possible deal. Uh, and uh, there's going to be resistance. There is, frankly, resistance on my side to do anything uh, on uh, entitlements. There is strong resistance on the Republican side to do anything on revenues. Uh, but if each side takes a maximalist position, if each side wants 100% of what uh, its you know, ideological predispositions are, then we can't get anything done. Uh, and I think the American people want to see something done. They feel a sense of urgency. Listening to President Obama talking about that sense of urgency as it relates to raising uh, the debt ceiling, and gosh, Scott, there are times where you think, okay, maybe they're close, and then there are times you think, there's no way they'll get this done. Yeah, when time. you hear him talk, you think, but is this ever going to be done? Yeah. If he's taking it to the American people to try to get them to sway. <laughs> I didn't expect that there, but uh, this, just before we went on the air, they said our rating got downgraded. Uh, so, pretty darn fucked. Oh. Who do you, who do you, who do you think you are? Our Congress. to Our Common Ground at Blog Talk Radio. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Wilmer, do you see how he confused the issues? Yes, and, and in listening to that again, something just dawned on me. Yes, he did confuse the issues because... Um, uh, as we talked about earlier, those issues should have been decoupled. But in listening to him, what I realized was he bought into the concept of the large deal. He bought yes. into the concept of the home run. And yes. what I think he failed to appreciate is what we talked about earlier. His adversaries we're never going to give him that large possible deal victory. They just weren't going to do it. There's no way in the world, particularly after him putting the double tap on Osama bin Laden and getting that unexpected uh, unexpected coup or victory, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's no way as we're in July of 2011 and we're looking at November of 2012 that they were going to give him the large deal. Yes. And so we you, were who do you think he is, Monty Hall? That was not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, we were a week away from August 2nd when he made those statements. That he just was not going to happen. He framed, <laughs> he framed their strategy right there. Yeah. And, and, he and, stole us down the river and he sold us down the river. I mean, I have been listening to Barack Obama speak uh, since he was in the the, the um, 
I, I mean, when he was in the Illinois legislature, I went to uh, a presentation that he made at Harvard Law School. He is so much more articulate mm-hmm. than that mealy mouth, whatever he was. It was like he was cooking up a brew. Now, Sophia Nelson did uh, did an interview with senior White House advisor Valerie Jarrett right after the debt deal. And for she did it for Essence magazine. And Sophia asked Valerie, Is this a good deal for America? Valerie Jarrett said, quote, Yes, this deal is good for America. Let's keep in mind that if we had not reached an agreement as we did late last night, the US economy domestically and globally could have faltered severely. If we had defaulted for the first time in our history, the consequences would have been a catastrophic impact on the global economy. Well, boys and girls, what happened? The world markets tanked, and Standard & Poor's downgraded the debt rating from double from AAA to AA. Mm-hmm. And the Dow Jones mm-hmm. Industrial Average lost 512 points. Yes. How wrong were they? Yes, yes. And Robert Reich tried to remind them and to school them even when he wasn't being asked. And, you know, his first clue should have been, and I hate to say this, (laughs) should have been when Bill Clinton came out and said, what I would do is I would invoke the 14th Amendment. Mm. That would have been political strength and strike. But now he's 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 um, made these compromises and 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 concessions uh, for a process that puts him right in the middle, rather than having said to to the House and to the Senate, send me nothing but the regular one paragraph of raising the debt ceiling. And I, I I looked at uh, previous debt ceiling uh, bills, and it's one paragraph. Let me tell you the problem with Robert Reich, Robert Reich, and the Obama administration. Robert Reich didn't go to Harvard. He well, taught at Harvard. I mean, he, he taught at Harvard. Yeah, uh huh. But he didn't. But he didn't go, go to Harvard. Harvard. He went to mm-hmm. Yale. Now, see, they're not going to listen to a guy from Yale because they went to Harvard. And we all know that everybody at Harvard is the smartest person in the world. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Our number is 347-838-9852. You're listening to a special edition being hosted with Dr. Wilmer Leon of XM Sirius Radio Inside the Issues with Wilmer Leon, which is broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Saturday mornings. Wilmer, how do we get out of this? Well, you know, um, in in another piece, uh, I I I talked about that that very issue, and I think first and foremost, 
it is incumbent upon uh, our organizations such as the NAACP and the Urban League. They need to be, uh, Mark Morial and Ben Jealous, they need to be out in the forefront championing the, uh, the ideas you know that their or their jobs uh ideas and programs that their organizations have been uh articulating you know it's it's great for them to meet with the president but we never seem to find out what the results of the conversations are so in you know and it's one thing to have some seminars and and conferences and talk about stuff but they're not out in the forefront championing the issue Jobs, jobs, jobs. They need to be creating the groundswell. You know, why they are not together advocating a march on Washington for mm-hmm. jobs. As we look to, uh, to unveil the, the Dr. King monument, there should, there should be what, what, what greater fitting testimony and tribute to Dr. King than a 2011 March on Washington the same weekend that they're unveiling his his monument. Yeah. There is a march that is scheduled for, for that day. It's being organized by the National Action Network. But if you're only talking about it, uh, to a certain segment of the population, you know, you know, one of the things we don't know when to do the inside job and then do the outside job. Uh, <laughs> we, and we, and how long has this has this has Reverend Sharpton's march been on the agenda? Exactly. It hasn't it been hasn't, on the agenda for a year. Exactly. Exactly. But I go back to the work of Dr. Ron Walters. And uh, and 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 really honor and acknowledge something that he talked about for more than 20 years, and that this country has to develop a domestic Marshall Plan. Mm-hmm. That it has to be framed around the deterioration of our public educational products and system. And the other part of it is, and I talk to to this audience about it all the time, and that is that we have got to start doing the challenge at the local levels. If that happens, if we can get uh, the Urban League and the NAACP to come together and develop a very specific strategic plan around jobs and employment issues. You know, for instance, this president could could come on the on the air tomorrow and say, "Listen, I want a bill that says that every person who is that we will give tax incentives to peop- to corporations who employ people who are currently unemployed." Let me tell you something right there That's to that so point. Simple. Right there to that what? point. What? Let me say something to that point right there. How many people in your audience realize 
Apple computer has more cash on hand than the United States government. Apple computer has $97 billion cash on hand. $97 billion. Mm-hmm. The United States government has 93.2. Mm-hmm. Apple Computer, where are iPods made? Where are oh. MacBooks manufactured? In Illinois? And iPads. Where are iPads and iPad 2s? Where are they made? Exactly. Not here. Right. But you're going to tell me that I that 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 with ninety seven billion cash on hand, that's not a credit line. That's money in the bank mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that they can't mm-hmm. afford to make some of those things here. That's right. And one of the things that we need to be saying to our elected officials, including this president, is that if you cannot be innovative, if you cannot see your way into building America, then you need to go home. Well, let me tell you a problem with your domestic Marshall Plan. The problem with the, and for those who who don't know, the Marshall Plan was the aid package and plan that America had to rebuild Europe after World War II. The problem with the domestic Marshall Plan is that that would require a fundamental change in the political landscape in terms of the ideology of what government is supposed to do and what government is supposed to be about. And as you point out in your piece, it's about values. This is all, at bottom line, about values. A domestic Marshall Plan would require people to understand that government is supposed to participate and facilitate programs that benefit people in this country. But that is in direct conflict with what the Tea Party is calling for and what ultra-conservative Republicans are calling for, which is less go- less government, more corporate intervention. So it's 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 a you're calling for a fundamental shift in what has been since the, since the Reagan administration is a dramatic shift in the whole concept of what government is supposed to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I challenge the Democratic National Committee to do, and that is to roll out a campaign across this country, because one of the the things, you know, my 86-year-old grandmother lives in Florida, and this whole thing has racked she and all of her friends, and they have been all of a sudden tuning in to MSNBC and, and anywhere they can get information. And one of the questions that they had for me, they were her friends, they would call, they would go out to lunch, and then my mother would come home, and and she would call me and say, here are our questions, and then she would go back and inform them. The DNC really needs to get on the road helping people to understand what all of this is about. For instance, how tax breaks are given to offshore, um, offshoring 
of, of, of businesses and jobs in this country. My mother asked me, well, what, what do these Tea Party people want? And I said, they want government to be smaller, but they don't understand what that means because they don't understand the nature of government. Right. Our number is 347-838-9852 if you'd like to talk with Dr. Leon and with me about this, the compromises and concessions and who's going to pay the price. It's certainly not going to be Apple computers, I think. They could afford to, though. Yeah, they could, they could afford to. <laughs> you know, and that goes back. Let's go back to what you talked about with with the Urban League and the NAACP and what organizations and publications ought to be doing and the media in in our community. We 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 ought to be developing learning academies. And that's something that the NAACP, that our organizations have failed to do. You cannot have a dialogue with someone asking them for commitment about things that they do not understand. Mm-hmm. And the black church and we, needs to and the black church needs to uh play a key role in, in that as well. Um uh, mm-hmm. particularly those that are involved in this, you know, this these this prosperity ministry stuff. Uh well how does your how does your prosperity filter down to the community? Mm-hmm. And and that's not happening. It's going into jet planes and alligator shoes and and you know big homes and big 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 edifices for people to congregate in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and don't forget about payout for pedophilia. Oh, yeah, yeah, pedophilia payouts. Exactly right. Uh, uh, you know, coming to a ministry near you. But uh, uh, but you know, what about setting up? Uh, 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 savings and loans. What what about uh, you know um, uh, other other kinds of of, of 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 lending organizations? I mean, if if you can generate enough money to spend twenty million dollars to build a church, how many homes could you renovate? How many homes could you build? How many people could you train in terms of green technologies? If you actually turned your focus away from green alligator shoes to green technology. Mhm, mhm. I I certainly reach out to Creflo Dollar. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm not gonna mention money, any, I'm not gonna mention money. any names, Creflo Dollar. <laughs> but one of the things that we don't do at the national level is that we don't ha- we don't uh, hold our elected officials responsible okay. and no. accountable. For relevant legislation, and we don't do that in our major community organizations, and that is our churches. Well, and that's exactly what we're talking about here: is holding our president accountable for substantial legislation. That's all we're talking about. That exactly. You know, uh, for instance, it's inconceivable to me that he talk that he has the audacity the unmitigated gall to talk about shared responsibility. Well, you know, I think... These same people 
right. voted on a war, on two wars. And now three, if you can't count Libya. Exactly. And they supported the nonsense of the Bush tax cuts. And I'm glad you brought that up because the president did mention this, but he never he never wove it into a narrative. A big part of what we now call our debt has to do with the fact that President Obama took the Bush-Afghanistan war and took the Bush-Iraq war off of the books and put them on the books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's something that a lot of people don't understand is that George Bush never put those war costs in his budgets. He would fund them with separate appropriations. And so they were always off the war books, I mean off the books wars. And so President Obama said, no, we're going to actually account for the dollars we spent. Yes. And then you had Republicans who supported both of those wars without question. Right. And some now the they same don't people, want to pay for it. Some of the same people that are now mm-hmm. talking about uh, the president has ruined our our economic status in two years. That was another fallacy, was that their whole narrative, the Republicans' narrative, and in Michelle Bachman's uh, response to the debt, uh, to the um, credit rating uh, going down, one of the things she said in there was that all of this took place over the last two years. As though we, this debt got it started getting accumulated in 2010. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just you know that's just wrong. <laughs> it, it, it 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 is wrong, and in many ways it's just immoral. And Herman Cain said the hate, same thing. And I I just have to I just have to mention that for all of the talk about patriotism in this country, that we could have what we see now in terms of the vitriol, the political vitriol, the lack of support of, of the, the lack of support of the principles of both justice and liberty. And one of the things, and I know it's outside of a uh, outside of your piece, but I wanted to ask you about is the the sense of in this country that we have in our community, especially about the boycott. We haven't talked about this: the boycott of uh, the UN conference on racism. Oh, <laughs> again. And I look at that and. I I have been saying to a lot of activists, don't tell me, if you are not involved in raising that issue at the White House and at at your with your local congressional uh, delegation, don't tell me how much you love Malcolm, because that was the point of his work for the last two years of his life. But well, it's like it's not happening. Well, you know... Um that is a great point, and it is an element in a in a much larger issue. Um, you know, I I think with this whole debt issue, the president 
had a real uh, had a real opportunity to uh, turn things around in terms of perception and really put us on a course of understanding um, how uh, what's really happening to America and as it relates to our to our debt because you know we China now controls uh so much of our uh of our economy and the uh UN racism conference and the fact that the United States is has not been supportive of of that of that venture and the primary reason is because most other countries in the world understand that Israel is engaged in an in a apartheid regime as it relates to the Palestinians. And now that's not me saying that. That's Anglican Archbishop Desmond Tutu saying that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is former South African President Nelson Mandela saying that. And those two guys know little something, a little something about apartheid. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So the United States' refusal to get on the right side of that issue is just another example of the United States being on the wrong side of that issue, being on the wrong side of the financial crisis issue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We we haven't been on the right side of much no. uh, in the last um, 16 years. No. And, and a lot is, of folks are saying the game's over for us now. We're no yeah, longer I mean, we're no longer the uh the hegemonic power that uh you know that we were. Uh yeah. and it's not because it's not because we are following the pattern of so many other great empires. What the problem that we are now having has to do with our own policies bringing about our own demise. Mhm. Mhm. And and you know, I look at what's happening in London just tonight. And I'm wondering how it, it it's way beyond apathy in this country. Yeah. And we certainly can't say we are we with the number of homeless veterans, with the no, number of uh, homeless people as a result of this um, housing uh, market crash. We certainly can't say we're comfortable, but we seem to behave as though we're very comfortable. Well, I think your comparison to London is a great example because some of that, I think, has to do with the difference in the political systems. And here with a two-party system where both parties at the end of the day seem to be, you know, two hands on the same body, I think as Gil Scott Heron used to say, mm-hmm. uh, uh, as opposed to a parliamentary system where you have coalitions, you have you have much greater participation because you have a much broader uh, uh, representation of interests based mm-hmm. upon the number of seats that are available and how parties get those seats. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and two, in this country, we still have an incredibly, uh, you know, the, 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 the chasm between the have and the have-nots is, uh, is, is, is so dramatic. But here, hang on one second. Let me, let me bring this to you in a minute. Let me bring it to you in a minute. Here, um, uh, there's still the dream 
that I can get mine too. Mhm, mhm, mhm. I I think that one of the things that we've got to get back to is I think that we are hedging too much on what the real issues are. That we we are walking gently when we ought to be stomping as though we are elephants in the room. And I don't know how you jar that. I mean, you're on the air every week. I'm on the air every week. I've been doing specials. Um, I've been talking. This is the 20th year of our common ground. And I've been talking about this um, closet and shadow government. Mm -hmm. And we see every evidence from the Cook Brothers to the National Association of Chamber of Commerce. We see it in an orchestrated and strategic placement of governors who are operating to bring all rights back to the states. And we still seem not to be able to connect the dots that it enrages us to the point that we understand how much of our liberties are being taken away. And someone said to me, well, you know, um, George Bush passed the Patriots Act, and nobody blinked. And and he used uh, the media, and he used an event uh, uh, to do that. Let, let me just... Let me. I have to close with this because something just came up that I that I have okay. to take care of. Uh, when okay. the elephants battle, the weeds suffer. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, uh, Wilmer Leon, thank and you. I hope we do this a lot. As many times as you call me, I will respond. But something just came up. I, I have to okay. respond. Okay. Thank okay. Okay, and thank you. Good night. That was Dr. Wilmer Leon. He can be heard on. XM Radio, XM Sirius Radio, uh, Channel 128, Inside the Issues with Wilmer Leon. He is a uh, brilliant, brilliant uh, political scientist, and um, we're just so pleased to be able to have uh, a relationship with a colleague uh, he's the host producer of the national nationally broadcast call-in talk radio. We hope that you will join him on Saturday mornings. Uh, he's riveting in his ability to analyze all of these things. Um, I want to uh, play for you before we go a little bit more of some of the comments made by a former Obama administration official about the economy. Our number is think a lot of times policy would be better if we, you know, listen to the experts. And, you know, one of the things I did really admire about President Obama is, you know, he always wanted to know the truth. He always wanted to know the facts, the evidence. And, you know, people would... Um, Before make, he did the wrong thing? 
But people would make fun of me. I'd Fuck make... you. He fucked up. He's not your boyfriend. He made lots of good decisions, and they were based on science. They were based on the evidence. They were based on the best evidence that he had, and that's what he always looked for. But this week we found out that the collapse, the, the real mm -hmm. collapse that happened you know, in 2008, was way worse than we thought. Absolutely. Meaning we probably should have had a way bigger stimulus than we did. And they voted for a kind of a, I mean, they did a kind of a, you know, a, would you agree, kind of a half-assed stimulus? It wasn't as big as it needed to be. There's no question about that. Now that we know just how bad things were, it should have been even bigger. I think whether we could have gotten any more at the time, I mean, we were really pushing up against what Congress was willing to do. And so, you know, if you think about it, when we started the transition, people were talking about maybe a big $500 billion stimulus. So at, at some level, I think the economics team and the president did help to move the debate and say, this thing is so bad, do at least $800 billion. Now, it should have been even bigger But I've that. read that they were just afraid of the number trillion, which is silly because, you know, that's where we are. Uh, you know, that's, those are the numbers that exist today because the, the numbers always go up, inflation and what more, whatnot. And it seems like the Democrats are always afraid to make the case because they got shouted down by those people who know less instead of just saying, look, folks, this is where we are. This is how governments get countries out of ditches like this economically. We've done it before, and we could do it again. I mean, that's why I'm mad at him. I think maybe it's channel that anger and think about where, what should we do now? I mean, I think, and so yes, I'd have liked the stimulus well, to be bigger. And I think what I, what I want is a bigger one, you know, is more now. I mean, I, I, the president today started talking about a very sensible plan of, you know, a, a tax cut for firms that hire veterans. And I want to say there are 15 million other unemployed people. Let's do a big tax cut for any firm that's willing to hire, right? So someone, I think, ought to be making the case for swinging for the fences, not small programs. Thank you for coming by. I really appreciate it. Right. And you're very funny. We didn't know that. All right. All right. Let's meet our panel. <laughs>
the best way to take on our deficit is with a balanced approach. One, where wealthy Americans and corporations pay their share too. But he didn't explain to us what that meant. He didn't underscore the number of corporations like GE and Apple and Microsoft who pay so little taxes in this country. Dr. Leon wrote that it appeared as though closing tax loopholes and increased revenues coming from the oil companies or a corporate jet owner that that's doing so well would not be a point of compromise, but it became the basis of concession. He goes on to remind us that as everyone in the middle and working classes will be dramatically impacted by the lack of balance in this compromise, African Americans will be disproportionately impacted. You should know that according to the most recent Pew Research Center report based on 2009 data and what Dr. Leon and I discussed tonight, that the typical black household had has just $5,677 in wealth, and that was in, in 2009. At the same time, the typical white household had 113000 149. That's compared to the African-American typical household of 5,677. About a third of black, 35% households, had zero or negative worth in 2009, compared with 15% of white holes. The Republicans were very insistent on attacking entitlement programs, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and it compromises us as a country that we do not share the sacrifices by closing tax loopholes and increased revenues from the wealthy in America as they have resisted. One of the things that I like to remind people about is that it was not until the late 1960s that more than 49% of all the African Americans in this country began to pay into, and that is current recipients of Social Security, paid into the Social Security system because of the system of employment under which they worked. And that is they worked in private households, they worked for families as domestics, maids, chauffeurs, uh, backdoor businesses, run, uh, um, come in the back door, get paid by cash on your way out. That was the late 1960s. So many of the African Americans who currently receive Social Security receive it not from a retirement plan, not from a 401k plan, but their entire income is based on what they receive from Social Security having 
most of their adult working lives not participated in the Social Security Insurance Program. That is so critical to how this is going to play out if the Republicans get their way and the president and your elected officials don't block them. These people will be impacted. You've been listening to Our Common Ground, a special edition with having Dr. Wilmer Leon join us tonight. And we thank you for your listenership. We appreciate it. One of the ways in which you can stay in touch with Dr. Leon is through W. Uh, Wilmer Leon, W-I-L-M-E-R-L-E-O-N.com. You can Twitter with him at Dr. W. Leon. You can Twitter with us at Janice OCG. You can visit our many places on Facebook, Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, our website, OurCommonGround.com, our community center where you can sign up to get our newsletter and information about our programming and updates and clarifications and new information, alternative information about news events. Um, we want to build a community where you, ha- do, where you can rely on an independent, clear voice about what we call the black truth of the event. We uh, thank you also for joining us in our 20th year of broadcasting. We're hoping that we can groom as many people coming behind us as possible. I have accepted a position as a part-time instructor at Emerson College uh, in the Department of Broadcasting in uh, helping young people understand the the cultural and political needs uh, of broadcast preparation and production. And that will begin in January. Not that I can necessarily take on another job. And we also want to invite you to join us every Saturday night, Speaking Truth to Power and Ourselves, at Our Common Ground. This coming Saturday, Barbara Arnwine, who's the National Executive Director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. She's been with us um, many times uh, in the past, and we look forward to our discussion with her about voter rights and the attack on voter rights in the African-American community, as well as the campaign Uh, for voter suppression. Thank you so much for being with us, and we hope that we will see you on Saturday night, and thanks to Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you for joining Our Common Ground on this special broadcast, a collaborative with Dr. Wilmer Leon. Join him in his broadcast Saturdays, XM Sirius Radio, 
It's Inside the Issues with Wilmer Leon. The Power, 11 a.m. And join us at Our Common Ground this Saturday with the Executive Director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, Barbara Arnwine, 10 p.m. Eastern Time, here at Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you.